to the book of Revelation that we turn now, um, making our way quite a bit through it at this point. Revelation chapter 14, we'll look at the first five verses, so if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn there, and if you're physically able to do so, why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, Revelation chapter 14, verse, first five verses, Revelation chapter 14, first five verses. And I pray that you and I would hear the word of the Lord that's given to us tonight. The word of the Lord says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word. May you now bless your word as it goes forth. And we pray that we would submit ourselves to it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, um, if you have been keeping up, um, we have already seen uh, through Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet has sounded. And after that seventh trumpet, there, there's now sort of a a supplement, if you will, in chapters 12 and 13, where uh, we are taking, uh, feels like, a little bit on a side journey. It's not really, but um, it's some, some additional information that we are needed. And it, betray, it portrays, in chapters 12 and 13, a, a persecution of the people of God by Satan, as well as a persistent, um, persistent persecution, but, but also the, a, 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 we talked about a satanic trinity that was formed. Uh, the, the, the dragon being Satan, the false uh, prophet, and as well as the beast. And so these served as a, as a, as a satanic trinity against, uh, over against the Lord and against his saints during this time of great problems and great troubles, great tribulations. And now in chapter 14, we pick up what seems to be another attachment, a, a sort of a ray of light, if you will, that consists of a, a series of prophetic visions that we are going to be given and, and in chapter 14. And God, that really proves that despite all of the chaos and all of the confusion that has been produced upon the world through judgment and through the rise of the beast and the, the false prophet and also the, the dragon, um, as, as Satan's work upon the earth, um, despite all of this, the Lord of glory is working out his great name uh, to be glorified throughout this, this opposition. Uh, that is that the governmental system and its, its positions that are, that are in full antichrist uh, positions are not left unchecked but ultimately are going to be exposed for their fraudulence. That is that they, they can't deliver what they've promised. And in chapter 13 and 14, I think I would just simply draw your attention to the fact that chapter 13 and 14 really do serve as, as, a, as a parallel to one another to show you the difference between the, the, the true Lamb of God as well as the false Lamb that arose. In chapter 13, we have in verse 11, we had the false Lamb that arose out of the earth. 
in chapter 14, in verses 1 and 4, you have the Lamb of God who didn't arise out of anywhere. He's just, just standing, which is important. Um, in in verse uh, chapter 13 and verse 11, as I said, the, the false lamb arises out of the earth. But the true lamb, in verse 1, is simply standing on Mount Zion. In chapter 13, this false lamb... Leads the world, leads the nations into the worship of the beast. Um, but in chapter 14, in verse 3, the song of the 144,000s is to the Lamb. It's to the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God. In chapter 13, verse 18, we see the beast's number, um, which is the number 666. But in chapter 14, in verse 1, we see the saints being given the seal of God. And so they really do serve to contrast the work, of, the work of Satan and the work of the false beast and the work of the false prophet against God. We also see in chapter 13, verse 16, that everyone is enslaved to the beast, uh, to, the, to, the, to the dragon, uh, through the false prophet. But in chapter 14, in verse 3, we see that the saints by contrast, are redeemed by the true Lamb of God. In chapter 13, we see in verses 16 and 17, again, the the beast gives a mark. um, But in verse 1 of chapter 14, again, the name of the Father and the Lamb are given to the saints. In chapter 13 and verse 14, we see deception uh, so that the world would follow uh, the beast. But yet in chapter 14, in verse 5, we see that the true followers of the Lamb of God have no guile, they have no lying in their mouths. And so uh, this this really does serve to contrast the world system, the world's government, with that of the Lamb of God, with that of the true true God and the true King's uh, work and his vision, his, his kingdom that is in the world working even now. And so in chapter 14, the opening verses really unfold a a beautiful vision. And this is what we're going to focus on tonight. Followed by in chapter uh, chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, we see this angelic pronouncement of of the work of of Christ. Uh, And then lastly, in chapters 14 through 20, in the coming weeks, we'll see the final issues and the ultimate and final defeat of the wicked in the world. That is that everything is going to flow from what we're going to look at tonight. In other words, the reason why the angels can sound forth of Christ's triumph and the Father's triumph and the reason why ultimately the Lamb overcomes and defeats the wicked is because he is standing upon Mount Zion. Because he is standing upon Mount Zion. So let's dive into chapter 14 and let's see what's, what's all here with this view of the Lamb and this 144,000 that sort of reappear. They sort of disappeared for a while and now we find them here again on, uh, in chapter 14. So let's see the location. Let's see the location of the Lamb and of these 144,000. Where are they? Well, John tells us, he says, And I looked, and, and, and lo, or literally, behold, a Lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. So John is now looking, and he's seeing, and the Lamb is now standing, and notice this, the, the indication is given, not that he's just appeared there, but that he has always been standing. 
there. That is that the Lamb didn't just appear on Mount Zion, but that he has always been where he has always been. That is that he is with his people. He is the king over the nations and of the church of Jesus Christ. We are told that he stands upon Mount Zion. And it is meant to show us not only the contrast to the false prophet and to the beast, right, who arise out of the sea of the nations and out of the, out of the earth, but he is shown standing here because he is ruling and defending his church. He is ruling and defending and feeding and blessing and standing in opposition to those who stand in opposition to him. He is the Savior that stands with courage over his people. He is the Savior of his people who stands in great strength. And you say, well, now wait a minute. This, that, that sounds completely, uh, I, I've never heard that before. Well, let me show you why I say that. So in order for us to get to that point, we need to go back to the book of Hebrews. Because the Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews, actually appeals to this very thought. So if you go back to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, listen to what it says here in verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Okay, it says this. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. And so Jesus has always been where Jesus is always going to be. Standing in triumph, standing in triumph upon Mount Zion, standing in triumph over his people, standing in triumph over against those who were oppressed by Antichrist and by his Antichrist um, <clears throat> governmental system. And he is standing in victory as the purchaser of the church of Jesus Christ, as those who are purchased by the blood of Jesus. But not only do we see their location, but, but we also see sort of we are given a glimpse of who these, who these are who are standing with him. Because we're told here in chapter 14 that not only is the lamb standing there, but there are 144,000 uh, having his father's name written in their forehead. And so there are 144,000 people who are standing with the lamb, right, who have been brought out and bought from all among the, the world, right? Um, the understanding is that the majority of the world uh, worships the beast, but that uh, there are those who are protected and guarded by God from worshiping the beast. And these are, these are representatives. These are representatives of that, of that group of people who have not worshiped. And yet God has, in fact, preserved their number and they did not bow the knee. Now, this is very similar to the imagery that God gives to the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. If you look back in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18, before, before you get to that verse, you'll, you'll see where God, you know, Elijah flees from his, for his life because he's being pursued by Jezebel, the wicked woman, um, and, and she's threatening to kill him, and he runs and he flees, and the strength and power that he's given... Uh, uh, and he runs to the to the to a cave, and he's there at a cave. And um, God uh, says, you know, he comes in a, in a in a whirlwind and a firestorm and all these things. And then he comes in a still small voice, and he, Elijah goes to the mouth of the cave. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, I alone have been rescued. I alone stand for you. And then in First Kings chapter nineteen, 
in verse 18, we have a very interesting comment by God himself here. What does he say? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18, listen to what the Lord says to Elijah. He says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. And so this serves as a, as a reminder that God is faithfully preserving his people throughout history. Um, God is faithfully preserving his people throughout history. These, these 144,000 simply serve as representatives through the election of grace that God has given to us, called out from, a world, from the world, called into his grace, brought to the Mount Zion, the heavenly, the heavenly kingdom of God, the heavenly Zion, which, which the, the Lamb of God stands upon, and we who are in Christ cling to him in great devotion. But why does God bring, why, why does God focus on this? Why is God telling us even about this? Well, because as we've seen throughout, as we move throughout Revelation, this is a great time of great turmoil. This is a time of, of, of unparalleled turmoil in which God is, is discussing everything that's going on. And he wants us to know that just as God enabled Enoch and Noah to walk in a world that was ripe for judgment, just as God blessed uh, the, the line of, 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 um, of, uh, of Seth, and as he walked, uh, and his line walked in holiness, um, that as they walked in holiness while the world grew riper and riper for judgment, this is the type of grace God gives his people. This is the type of grace that God gives to us. God gave the grace that Noah needed to pass safely through the floodwaters of judgment, and God will provide to his people the, nece the necessary grace as we pass through this world and through the floodwaters of the judgment that this world must face because of their sin and their rebellion against Christ. Those that have been mentioned here, right, those that have been mentioned here, these 144,000, do you notice what it says about them? Well, it says that they have the Father's name, right, written in their foreheads, but the implication is also that not only are, are, is the Father's name written upon them, but earlier they have the Lamb's name that had been written upon them. And so what God is indicating to us and what he is telling us through this is that they have been doubly sealed. So their, their seal is sure, that their assurance is guaranteed. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, that our assurance is also doubly sealed. And this is, our, our assurance is no different than their assurance. We have been doubly sealed by the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, just as he is bringing mention to these 144,000. Uh, God's plan is not changed. So you say, well, pastor, where do you see that? Well, I would simply point you to Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. We are doubly sealed. Our assurance before God stands firm because God has sealed us. Not because you've sealed yourself. Not because I've sealed myself through belief in Jesus, right? Through some carnal belief that we, we had some assent that, oh, yes, I, I, I believe this. Or I, I, I know this to be true. But rather Christ, through the gospel, has sought us out, has bought us, and has brought us to himself 
And so God in Christ has done this. And he has granted to us this badge of blessedness, which now is represented by these 144,000, which, which shows both ownership and destiny. You and I, the same as these 144,000 representatives here, have the, the seal of God placed upon us through the Holy Spirit, and by God placing the seal of ownership upon us, He shows both our ownership as well as our destiny. Our destiny. That is that we are owned by God and we are destined to reign with Christ. We are owned by God, we are slaves of God, and we are destined to reign with Christ. Not because of our work, not because of our faith, not because of our belief, Not because of something we've done, but because of the sovereign work of God through the power of the gospel. And so God's grace is enabled for us and through us. The same as it was through Enoch and Noah. The same as through the 144,000 representatives here in chapter 14. But as a result, then, they proclaim something in verses 2 and 3, don't they? So not only is this seal upon them in chapter 14, verse 1, but they also, as a result of this, they proclaim. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now, Christian, let me say this. This, this, this is no different than what God has done and is doing today. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, once we are saved and placed into, the, into Christ, what happens? Well, how do we respond? We respond through singing a new song, the song of redemption, the song of Christ, the song that comes from Christ that is given to us through the Spirit, and we sing in response to the work of God in Christ for us. It is the song of redemption. This new song that that they sing is actually referenced, I believe, back in Revelation chapter 7. This is the new song that they sing, and it is the song of redemption. It is the song that they sing that comes to them through Christ. And they they are singing with such beauty and with such vigor. But they're, they're not singing it alone. Who is singing with them? Well, it says, it says, well, nobody else can learn it, so how can anybody else be singing it? But who joins in? All of heaven. And I'll talk, to about, I'll talk about why it says that they only can be the ones who can sing this when all of heaven joins in with them. Right? All of heaven joins in with them and they sing. Because it says, and I heard a voice from heaven, and the voice of many waters, and is the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song. Who were the they? The 144,000? Yes, but also the entire throng of heaven. The entire redeemed of the people of God through all generations sing this song. And they only, the redeemed of God, are the only ones that can sing it. This is not just in reference to the 144,000, as many people have taken it to mean. That's not, that's not the point. In context, that's, that's not what John is saying. John is not saying that only the 144,000 can sing it, but only the redeemed of Christ can sing this song. Because it is the song of redemption. 
is the song of redemption. And they proclaim this. And John even tells us the volume in which they sing this. I mean, he says that it is, it is as loud as many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a giant waterfall, right? But if you go, um, but even if you go to a smaller waterfall, right, such as down in, down in uh, Whitley County, on the edge of Mercer County there, Cumberland Falls, on a day in which that thing is really roaring and you get close to it, it's loud. It's loud. If you go to Niagara and you stand next to Niagara, it is loud. But those have nothing compared to the loudness of which John now hears the redeemed singing this song. He says that it's not just the sound of, of, of some waters or even a lot of waters. It's the sound of a great many waters. Loud, rushing floodwaters. Loud, rushing, great thunder. He likens their, to their voice to a great thunder. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a, um, uh, uh, to, to a uh, prof- uh, I don't know if I want to call it a professional choir where there's an orchestra and there's, you know, you've got uh, the, uh, um, the band and the orchestra and the choirs in the background. But if you have, you'll, you'll sort of get a glimpse, or if you've ever heard this, you'll sort of get a glimpse of what John is saying here. He is likening all of heaven to a giant chorus. And the angels are harping and they're playing on their harps. And, the, the, and the, as they play, the, 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 the louder and the softer the, the choir becomes. And it's, it turns into this, this very soft, very then growing in, in its strength and its intensity and loudness as, it, as, as all of heaven is responding to worship. It's a choir unlike any other. It's a beautiful, beautiful choir of heaven. And this 144,000 along with all of these are singing. Um, They're singing. They're singing. They're singing of the loudness and the greatness of the redeemed and of God's work. It's interesting here in verse 2 that the name of or the noun voice appears in the text four times. Um... John is emphasizing the song. The voices are singing the song. It's not just the harpers harping. It is the voices gathered together in singing. And John does tell us that they are harping on at least three different occasions, right? He says, I heard harps harping, right, um, while they were harping or as they harped. And, and they join the song. And it's a beautiful song. It's a celestial song. It's being sung. And it's, it's newness. It's newness. It's a new song. You say, earlier I said, I think it's Revelation 7, but that's not, that's not quite right. I believe it's Revelation, uh, good thing I made myself a note here. I believe it's in Revelation 5, verse 9. Yes, chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. And they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and have made us to our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign upon the earth. Now there are other songs written, uh, but this is ultimately, I believe, a reference back to chapter 5 verse 9 of the song that's being sung. And the participants, as I said, is 144,000. Now, you, you would say to me, Pastor, but it says here, 
it says here that they sung a new song as it were before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders that no man could learn that song but the hundred and and it says and it even says but the hundred and forty four thousand which were redeemed from the earth so you're telling me something that the bible doesn't say to that i would say no 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 not at all not at all the hundred and forty four thousand are in fact leading this worship they are in fact the ones leading forth in this worship as representatives but they are not the only ones singing this song and so what is it that what is it that these hundred and forty four thousand are singing well these 144,000 are, are, are representatives of all of those who have been redeemed out of the earth. How do we know that? Because look what it says here in the text. It says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. You notice what's going on here. These 144,000, these participants, are simply the first fruits of those that have been redeemed out of the world. If you don't know anything about the first fruits, um, give, give me just, just a minute and I'll talk about that. But these were not an elite group of people from among God's people. No, no one, the reason no one else could learn this song is because everyone else who had not been redeemed were in direct opposition to those from among, the, 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 among earth, from the group of men who were a part of the apostate church, if you will, the apostate worshipers, because only true believers could be the ones who sing the song of redemption. Only true believers are the ones who can sing this because only they have been able to apply it to themselves. Only they have been washed from their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only they are the ones that that can know this through experience. Only they are the ones who can know this because of God's electing and redeeming grace that has been applied to their lives. Other people may be able to know about these things, but only those who are redeemed can know these things. You say, well... Who are they singing to? Well, ultimately, they are leading the song to the Trinity, to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And they are singing before the four beasts and the 24 elders, right? Revelation 4, 1 through 11. So that both heaven and earth hear the praise given. And they join in singing this song. And it's a concert that John hears that starts out loud and then softens and then is joined in with all the redeemed of heaven and earth. These are, not, these are they who have never worshipped the beast at any time. They did not join in with the, with, with the prostitute of Babylon and her spiritual prostitution as she prostituted herself before the kings of the earth, before, before which she, she defiled herself before, before heaven itself because she committed spiritual fornication and was idolatrous and her idolatrous practices before God because she was not chaste or sincere in her love for Christ instead led people to just as Jezebel did in wickedness and in the worship of 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 the 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 demons of this world instead of the God of heaven and these are they who would not bow themselves to the worship of the of the of as as the king james says the whore of babylon and we'll talk more about her before long she she does appear before long here in revelation and so we we see that these are they who open their mouths and it says even says that there is no guile 
no lying found in their mouths. They were in a time, these 144,000, these representatives, these were not all of them, we know that because much earlier in Revelation we're told that, that these serve as sort of a, 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 a zealous, a zealous evangelist to go out and proclaim Christ and a great number of people are saved. But these serve as representatives to show that even in a time of great apostasy and great allegiance to those who are, who are committed to, to, to an antichrist, that, that there are those that God will keep for himself. They are those who are qualified to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. They are those who are qualified to honor Christ in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God in the world and to the nations. Because he calls them, he calls them here, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but, but these are people who, 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 who are practicing in their lives honorable, honorable lives. They are without blemish. They are accepted by the Lamb of God. They are loved by God. They are loved by, by the Father. They are loved by the Spirit. They are loved by the Son because they are committed to the Son of God. And so then it goes on and it talks a little bit about their sanctification, right? And it says that these are followers of the Lamb. These are, these are those that wherever the Lamb goes, these, they're going to go, right? They're, they're not going to go anywhere where the Lamb isn't. Uh, and, and, and so, in other words, they're, they're going to be committed to the Lamb of God in everything that they do. And this is, by the way, this is, a, this is represented, represented here by the, the understanding of a continuous action. In other words... They don't start and stop. Now, this is, this is, a, this is a, a start, and then I, I, I or they uh, live their lives for the glory of God in every way. This is a continuous activity on their part. Now, they are not the Lamb's bodyguard, right? Uh, because he doesn't need any such thing. I mean, an angel killed a hundred and, you know, plus, thousand plus, you know, in one night. And the Lamb of God doesn't need a bodyguard. So these aren't bodyguards, but they are devoted to him, that wherever he goes, they love him and they serve him and they honor him. And he says that, that these, are, these, are, these are people, these are people who are, he calls them virgins. Now, why would he call them virgins? Well, look, look what he says here in verse 14, uh, or in chapter 14, excuse me. Um, and he says in verse 4, And these are they which, which were not defiled with women, for they, were, they are virgins. Uh, these are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits of God to the Lamb. So what does he mean by that? Well, what he is meaning by that is he is showing us that these people have not in any way bowed themselves spiritually to prostitute themselves with the idolatry of the nations of this world. They have been spiritually kept. They are spiritually pure. They are spiritually, um, uh, they are spiritually keeping themselves for their, for their Lord and Savior. And it actually harkens back and brings to memory the understanding of the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus mentions in the Gospels. Do you remember? There were five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Five foolish virgins went out and they, they, they because they didn't, they weren't wise enough to get enough oil. And so they tried to get five, the, the five wise virgins to give them oil. 
They didn't. They wouldn't because they said, well, maybe we don't have enough for ourselves. And so then they wouldn't give. So they went out and the, the five foolish virgins missed out. Well, the same here is, is this is the same understanding is that that these are they who are committed completely to the lamb, to the to the son of God, to Jesus Christ himself. They are committed to him. They love him. They serve him. They honor him with their lives. They honor him in the world, in this present, wicked, dark age, this present, wicked, dark world. In the midst of vanity and wickedness and idolatry, they keep themselves from sin. They keep themselves from wickedness. They keep themselves from anything that would taint them. And their redemption is is clear. It's pure. It's it's, it's beautiful. And we who are in Christ have been made pure. We have been made clean. We have been made and, and we, have been, we have been renewed in Christ. We have been made new creations in Christ. Just like these. We are new creations in Christ. And so we re- rejoice We rejoice in God's work on our behalf for us. But then there's one other thing I want us to see, and that's their their work, their their work that they're doing. Now, I I don't know if you know anything about the Feast of First Fruits. I I would simply tell you that if you don't, you need to go back and you need to to discover this beautiful feast called the Feast of First Fruits because it it was an annual feast um, every year by by which the farmers would come and they would bring all of the, the first part, the first uh, offering of their grain uh, or their, uh, their 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 fields and whatever they were growing, and they would bring it to the Lord. They would cut out one sheaf, and then they would present this to the Lord. Now, it wasn't the whole harvest. They didn't they didn't offer the whole harvest, but they did offer um, this sheaf before the Lord, and it was a token of thanksgiving. It was a it was a way for them to thank God and recognize of what God had done for them. Uh, and blessing them and it was a way for them to offer to God this this beautiful offering to the Lord but here we are told that these 144,000 are called the first fruits but notice who does the taking notice who does the choosing notice who is the one who takes these it's not them offering themselves it is the father through the son bringing himself these first fruits it is the father through the son bringing himself these first fruits they were taken from among all the nations as a first fruits but a first fruit of what well the first fruit of none other than the victory of christ over the nations you see these were called by grace and consecrated for worship and service and they are a reference to the harvest of souls that have taken place throughout the centuries Throughout the centuries, large numbers of people coming to faith in Christ, being brought in through the gospel, and now is, are being gathered in under the spiritual reign of Christ. And these persons will be and are simply the beginning of those which are converted out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. They are a first fruits, as it were, to the nations, of the nations, of Christ's victory over the nations. By the way, uh, the, the apostles refer to themselves as the firstfruits. I don't know if you know that, but they did. They refer to themselves as the firstfruits as well. And so these, these people, this, this group of people that's being referenced here, 
are simply the first fruits of the, 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 from the nations, from among the nations, of all of the people who are and will ever be redeemed by God through Christ from among the nations because guess what? Nothing can stop the victory of Christ. Nothing can stop the victory of Christ. No, no antichrist that ever has or ever will arise will ever stop Christ. No false prophet that has ever arisen or ever will arise will stop Christ. Satan, with all of his scheming and all of his, all of his, 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 his schemes and plans, he can't stop the victory of Christ. And not even man in all of our depravity and wickedness can stop the victory of Christ. There is nothing and no one who can stop Christ. There is nothing and no one who can stop the victory of God in Christ. Christ's victory is won. It has already been purchased. It has already been won. We simply await the day in which that victory is fully revealed to us. We see it now by faith. We, we long for it. We wait for it. We feel, we feel the weight that there is great wrong in the world. We feel the weight that there is great sin in the world. And we, along with creation, groan for the day in which Christ will ultimately reveal his victory over the nations. And until that time, we preach, for, we preach the gospel. We pray for the harvest of souls. We, we seek the harvest of souls from among the nations that Christ would be glorified through these first fruits. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that uh, you are not stopped by Satan or by any antichrist or by any false prophet. Uh, God, thank you that you are not limited by uh, by men. You're not limited by women. You're not limited by governments. You're not limited by, by anything. Uh, God, you are sovereign and you stand victorious upon Mount Zion, even now, victorious over the nations, victorious over your people, standing guard, watching over us as your people. Though we experience tribulations and trials and troubles in this world, though we experience great difficulties in this world, God, we thank you that you are standing even now victorious over the nations. May we as your people participate in the preaching of the gospel. May we be fully given over to the preaching of the gospel to the nations, that Christ would be glorified, that sinners would come to faith in Christ, and that you would, in fact, extend your rule and reign over the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.